Our sermon text today is Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 13. I invite you to follow along as I read. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Excuse me. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Mo- had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go Out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then... They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, would you teach us, instruct us, minister to us, humble us before your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. Good morning. From 1991 until 1995, Bill Belichick, you heard of him? He was the head coach of the Cleveland Browns at that stage. Uh, Pat's fans here probably know that. But did you know that during those years, 1991 to 1995, he compiled a 36-44 and record? He won only one playoff game, and it was ironically against the Pats. In his last season, he finished 5-11, and and on February 14, 1996, he was fired from the Cleveland Browns. Happy Valentine's Day, Bill. Needless to say, after those five fairly atrocious seasons with the Browns, Bill Belichick, he needed a fresh start. He needed a new beginning. It took a couple of years for him to finally land on his feet with the Pats organization as their head coach, and of course the rest is history. Well, like Bill Belichick, we all enjoy having a fresh start, don't we? We enjoy having a fresh start, especially when our past situation was difficult and our present situation, our new situation, is better. We enjoy that. Life, of course, is full of new beginnings. Your first day of school, your first boyfriend or your first girlfriend, do you remember that? Your first day moving into the college dorms, your first day in a grown-up job, your Uh, First day as a Christian, your first days of marriage. We've had several couples in the last four, five, six weeks get married, and uh, these are their first few days, first few weeks, the start of a new chapter in life. It often feels great. You may be here this morning because you long for a new beginning. That's why you're here. Your current situation is difficult, and you want a fresh start. Maybe you're going through a life crisis or you're hurting over a relationship or you've received a a, a bad diagnosis recently. Maybe your job is horrible and you just want to get a new job. And here you are in church because you want a fresh start in life. And you think, you know, with the church, the Bible, maybe God could give me a fresh start in life. Maybe God could do something new in my life, and so that's why you're here. Or maybe you've been, you know, sitting in these pews for years and decades and who knows how long, and now today you long for a new beginning as well with the Lord. Maybe the spiritual well is dry and you want a new experience of God. The plate's empty and you you hunger for more of Jesus, and that's why you're here this morning. You want a fresh start. Well, you've come to a good place because if you want a fresh start in life, then what you're going to hear this morning is exactly how to get that. 
there was ever a people, if there was ever a nation, if there was ever a leader that needed a fresh start, that desperately longed for a new beginning, it was Israel and it was Moses, 400 years in slavery. It's about 15 generations Some of them knew nothing but slavery and oppression and hardship. But God, as we know, is doing something new. He's going to give them a new start. So where are we in the story of Exodus? Well, we're at the end of the plagues. We've seen nine pretty terrible plagues, and now we're at the final plague. And here's here's the worst plague. Here's the worst of the bunch. It's the worst because people are now actually going to die. Chapter 11 is a pretty short chapter. It sort of sets up chapter 12. And in chapter 11, God tells Moses about this last plague to come. And he tells Moses to tell Israel. And then Moses tells Pharaoh what God's going to do. So here's the deal. God tells Moses. God tells Israel. Moses tells Pharaoh. So everybody is in the know. This is what God's going to do. But he's telling them all ahead of time. That's a pattern in Exodus. We've seen this before. God tells them he's going to do something, and then he does it. And here's the point. God is in control. God is in control of this whole thing. He's not surprised by any of what happens. In fact, he planned every bit of what's about to happen. And so Israel can trust him. And so can we. So can we. For the rest of our time together, I'd like to zoom in on chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I want to show you how the Passover event introduces three new realities to Israel. Three new realities for Israel. First of all, a new era. Second, a a new sacrifice. And third, a new meal. A new era, a new sacrifice, and a new meal. So let's start with a new era. Well, well, once again, think about this. Slaves for 15 generations. Slaves for 400 years. It's quite possible that this nation had very little sense of time. Slavery was, 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 of course, extremely monotonous. Maybe every day blended into the next, every week blended into the next week, and every year just kind of just started blending together. It's not like they had weekends off. Now watch how God drops in on this situation. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So because of the Passover, what God was about to do, God wants this particular month to be the first month of a new calendar year. We know from other passages of Scripture that this particular month was called Abib, which is in the 21st century, somewhere in March or April. Of course, today, major world events can change our calendars too, right? We've got 4th of July, got Memorial Day, and, and other events. But even better examples would be uh, Christmas and Easter. They reorient our life around Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. Well, that's how the Passover event totally reset the calendar for Israel. God was instituting a new era for Israel, a new way of telling time. 400 years of barely being able to keep track of days and weeks and months and years, but now God was doing something new. A new era. 
Have you ever wanted to leave your past behind? Have you ever wanted a a big do-over? Ever hoped that you wouldn't be defined by something you did in your past? Maybe a decision you made, some some words you said, a relationship you started. Maybe something you avoided but you shouldn't have avoided. Is there something in your past that you feel like defines you? And you just wish you could get past it. You know, sometimes the world tells us that we only get one shot at things. You only get one shot. There's no do-overs. You might be able to come back from that one mistake you made. Maybe. But our passage this morning, even just in these first two verses, and really the rest of the Bible, tells us something entirely different. It gives us hope. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you can totally wipe out your past, but it does mean you have a completely new future. Amen? That's what God does. He makes all things new. Let me show you something else. Take a look at verse 3. It says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. A better translation would be, Tell all the congregation of Israel. That word congregation occurs 100 times in the book of Exodus and in Joshua. It's a pretty common word, but this is the first time in the entire Bible the word congregation is used. And that's significant. Before this moment, the people were just called Hebrews. They were referred to as an ethnic group. Now they're called a congregation, a distinct community, a people, people formed for God. And here's the theological point. God is shaping this new people with a new identity as a new nation. They're not just Hebrews anymore. Now they are a group of people that have been shaped by the shared experience of being redeemed. Being redeemed. This is God constituting, putting together a new people, birthing a new nation. And what they have in common is more than just ethnicity. It's the experience of salvation. So when we get a fresh start that has been given to us by God, he gives us a new family. He gives us the church. In the New Testament, the word for congregation is is the Greek word ecclesia, which means assembly or congregation or church. It's all different kinds of people. If you look around the room here, there's lots of different kinds of people, and we've all gathered together in this place before the cross And we're all one in Christ before the cross. This is what God does. He constitutes a new people. The Passover united the Hebrews and and made them into a nation. And that's what Christ does with the church. He unites us and makes us into one family. So you want to be a part of something new that God's doing? Get involved in the church. Get involved in the church. Now, I know it's really easy for, for folks to walk into the church and just kind of walk out when the service is over. I see some of you guys running out the door. Um, and, and I know we all have stuff to do. I mean, let's be honest. You've got things to do. I've got things to do. And, uh, and sometimes you just don't want to talk to people, right? You just don't want to talk to strange people. That's okay. That's okay. I understand that. But here's the deal. If God is beginning a new era with a new family, and and that's your fresh new start, and if this is the family gathering right here, you've got to make time for the family, right? 
You've got to make time for the family. You've got to set aside time for the family. And that means getting to know some folks after the service. Take a moment. Get to know some folks after the service. Maybe it's people that you've been sitting around for, I don't know, maybe years. You see them, you, you, you know the back of their head really well. You know, I mean, you just, there it is. Oh, it looks like he's got one more gray hair. Well, tap them on the shoulder and introduce yourself. Open up your life to these people. This, this is your family right here. This is your family that Jesus has bled for and has reconstituted, not only for his glory, but for your sake, for your good. God has brought you into a new era with a new family. So that's the first new reality we see here for Israel. A new calendar, a new life orientation, a new family. But how do we experience this new era? How do we get into this new era? Does does God just kind of snap his fingers and Israel's all of a sudden rescued and brought into the promised land? Well, obviously there's more to it than that. And what we see in the Passover, in the rest of these verses... So we get to see how God gives Israel a fresh start. How God gives Israel a fresh start. And we also see how God gives us a fresh start. A new sacrifice. Let me read verses 3 through 7. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old, uh, year old males without defect, and, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs, a new sacrifice. If you're not yet a Christian this morning and and you're listening to this, you've read this, you you may be wondering, why do Christians always talk about blood? The blood of the lamb. Why do we always sing about the blood? Why do we we always um, preach about the blood? What's the deal with the blood? Well, it all began in Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to answer your question. It's right here, Exodus chapter 12. Before this passage, blood wasn't really so important. And after this passage, blood would be extremely important. So God gives Moses some kind of bizarre instructions here. On the 10th day of this month, they would choose a lamb. It need to be a year old, so it was fully grown. No defects, no blemishes. That was important. On the 14th day, they would slay it at twilight, so at the end of the day, and they would apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintels. I know it says sides here, but it's lintels, the top part of the door. Now, doorposts and lintels means that the Israelites were totally settled in Egypt. They had houses in Egypt. They had mud brick houses, so they were no different from every other ordinary Egyptian family until, until... The blood was put there. Now, what exactly does the blood mean? Check out verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, God, when God sees the blood, I will pass over 
you. There, there's the name, Passover. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So if you take away the blood, Israel was going to get destroyed just like Egypt. Right? You take away the blood, you take away um, the protection, you take away this shielding that Israel was to receive. So Israel had this need beyond just rescue from slavery. This is really important. They had a need beyond just rescue from this particular land, from slavery. They were sinners. And they needed a blood sacrifice because they were sinners. God wasn't just going to kind of sweep their sins under the rug because they were his people. Blood was required to atone for their sins. Blood was required to spare Israel from the destroyer that was to come that very night. So Israel not only needed a rescuer, Israel needed a substitute. You see that? A substitute. Redemption isn't just salvation from slavery and salvation from the old life. Redemption is also salvation from sin and salvation from death. You can think about redemption like this. God's got a hammer and God's got a shield. And he uses both to get us out of Egypt and get us a fresh start. What does that mean? Well, with the hammer, God breaks the shackles of our old life. He, he sets us free. He gets us out of Egypt. But he also uses a shield. And with the shield, he protects us from and absorbs the judgment that we deserve. The blood of the lamb was that shield. Now, in the Passover, God sets up a pattern that finds its fulfillment and culmination in Jesus Because we need blood. We need blood to atone for our sins. We not only need God's hammer of rescue, we need that, but we need God's shield of protection. We need a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, fully grown at the prime of his life, whose blood we can put on the doorposts and the lintels of our life, whose blood can shield us from the judgment to come. We need a substitute. Listen to how the New Testament writers talk about Jesus. John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, sees him for the first time walking up to the waters. He's baptizing people. And does he say, hey, cousin, what's up? No, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did the apostle Peter think about salvation? Listen to this. This is from 1 Peter. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. And when the Apostle John had a vision, we we just read this a few minutes ago, when the Apostle John had a vision of these last days in the book of Revelation, what what did he see? He got a sneak peek into heaven. What did he see? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This is a peek into heaven. But he also heard something. He heard a worship song. Do you remember this worship song? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's the song that we're going to sing into eternity And all of that teaching, all of that worship, all these songs, they find their beginnings in Exodus chapter 12, the blood of the Lamb. So what's the application for us? 
Well, you got to apply the blood. You got to put the blood up on the doorposts and the lintels of your life. That's what Israel did, and it took faith and obedience. They believed that if not for the blood, God's going to come down and judge them. It took them faith, and it takes faith today as well. You may be coming here for a long time, and you've heard all the messages and sang all the songs, and you've read all the scriptures. You've heard about the blood of the lamb, but you've never applied the blood to the doorposts and lintels of your household. Imagine for a moment the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, were to come to the South Shore tonight. I don't know what that looks like. In the Ten Commandments, it was this green mist. Those of you who have seen the movie, it was this green mist that kind of lingered in Goshen and and kind of floated along and, and people would just kind of drop dead. Whatever it looked like, brothers and sisters, would you be safe? Would you be safe if the destroyer came tonight? How secure would you feel? How confident would you be? Listen, the Lamb Jesus has been slain for sinners. His blood is available for sinners. And all you have to do is apply it, which means trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that this morning if you haven't already? Would you trust him? You need God's hammer, but first you need his shield. Because you not only need rescue, you first need atonement. God has provided that in Jesus. So we see first a new era that God is instituting. Second, we see a new sacrifice that makes this new era possible. And now we see a new meal. Look at verses 8 through 11. That roasted... Oh, excuse me. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is, still, uh, if some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Details of this meal are pretty fascinating. They're kind of strange. They seem kind of weird to us, but there's great intentionality, of course, behind God's instructions here. Every part of this meal points to a decided break with the Egyptian life and a new commitment and kind of preparation for a new life in the promised land eventually. I want to show you this from this passage just in a couple places. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Do you see the bitter herbs there? Now, why would God ask Jewish people to eat bitter herbs? Well, they represent the bitter suffering that they have endured for 400 years. Reminds me of Exodus 1, verse 14. The Egyptians made Israel's lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Bitter, harsh labor. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jenny and I were eating at Flatbread Company in uh, Conway. I think it's North Conway, New Hampshire. And I decided that this would be a great evening to give my two-year-old Sam a lime. 
um, because I'm a good parent like that. And so I, I gave him a lime, and, and he chomps on this lime, and, and of course, you should have seen his face. I mean, he just started contorting and twisting, and, and he was just, he was not happy with the lime that I gave him. Well, that's what bitter herbs were supposed to do. You know, it's this, it's this tactile experience. It was an object lesson. It was meant to teach. You may wonder, why 400 years? Why 15 generations of slavery? That's a long time. Well, maybe part of it is to drive home a message. Your old life without God is bitter. It's terribly bitter. You don't want it. You don't need it. You want a fresh start? Well, you need a new master. You know, it's good for us to remember our bitter old Egyptian lives. Life before Christ, life without God's grace. Do you remember that life? Can you taste that life? Does it have a bitter taste in your mouth? Or is it a little sweet? An old Puritan great Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I hope your old Egyptian life tastes bitter to you. Now check out verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this meal again was meant to be eaten in haste on the run. Now the first command there, it says, uh, with your cloak tucked into your belt. Literally, it's gird your loins. Don't you love that phrase? Gird your loins. It kind of makes you feel a little weird because you don't know what it means, right? Let me tell you what it means. Ancient Near Eastern drab, it consisted of these long cloaks and if you wanted to run, you had to grab you know, the long part from between your legs and then tuck it into your belt, and then you could run. So God's saying, gird up your loins. Get your shoes on. Pack up the cooler. Warm up the car. It's time to go. Get out of Egypt. It's time to leave Egypt. God's already used his shield. The blood has been applied. Now he's going to use his hammer to get these guys out of Egypt. Maybe you long for a new beginning, but you also kind of love Egypt. You like cutting corners at work. You like lying to make yourself look good or exaggerating to make yourself look good before people. Maybe you enjoy drinking a few too many. No one's looking. No one cares. We're looking at pornography just a little bit. A few weeks ago, my wife called me out for... um, a little bit of gossip, started talking about somebody, and she said, what? what are you doing? You don't need to talk ill about somebody else. Why are you doing that? Well, it's kind of fun. It's enjoyable to talk ill about other people, right? Just tell me, get out of Egypt. You've applied the blood. Get out of Egypt. This is hard for us, right? It's hard for us. God's done everything necessary to give us a new beginning. We've got the blood. We've got to get out of Egypt. Listen, church, we need to be praying for each other because Egypt is so attractive, isn't it? It's so attractive. It's so tempting. We need to be a church community that prays for each other so that we stay our ground, so that we continue to run out of Egypt. It's a daily thing. 
we come to a close, I want us to imagine that night on the 14th day of Abib, the night of Passover. Imagine yourself there and, and you and your family, you've, you've chosen that lamb and you've made sure, okay, it's a year old and it, it has no blemishes, no defects, and you've, you've chosen it and there, there's four days that you're waiting and, and, and your family's preparing that lamb and preparing the herbs and all the different parts of this meal. And the 14th day comes up and then it's twilight and, and you slaughter this lamb. And you, your, your family, your whole family, you believe the destroyer's coming. And so you get the blood and you apply it to the door frames. You apply it to the lintels of your house. And then you wait. As you sit before your family, if you sit before this meal, you wait. And then as the evening grows dark, you hear the screams. You hear the cries. Because Egyptians are dropping dead all around you. You hear their wails, those awful sounds of death and pain and grief. As Egyptians' moms and dads are holding their firstborns because they haven't applied the blood. Then you look at your firstborn son, and he's alive. He's alive. His face is grimacing because he's eating the bitter herbs. He's got his shoes on. He's got his cloak on. He's ready. And he looks at you and he says, Daddy, we can go now? We can leave Egypt now? You look at him and you say, Yes, son, we can go because of the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the blood of the Lamb. We do not sing these songs. We do not pray these prayers. We do not preach these sermons because we are religious people. We do this because we are grateful people. We are so grateful for the substitute that has been provided for our sins. We're so grateful that we are saved from judgment because of this substitute. Oh, Father, help us not to linger. Help us not have one foot in Egypt and one foot in the promised land. Father, help us to leave Egypt in haste because of the blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.